It's very late on a dark and moonless night. Flickering torches illuminate the courtyard of a Hindu temple, their eerie light revealing, then concealing, then revealing again a bloody horror. The decapitated heads of 108 goats spiked to the ground. One looks straight ahead, its glazed horizontal pupils stare without seeing. Another's thick tongue lolls out of a mouth forever locked open in rigor mortis. Surrounding them, wild-eyed demons with spiked teeth dance to a soundless rhythm. The only noise, the sliding of bare feet across cobbled ground, and the drip, drip, drip of blood from 108 jagged wounds. Outside the courtyard, a mother holding her little girl's hand approaches the temple gates along with the child's father and a priest whose long orange robes brush the dusty ground. He stops and looks at the family solemnly. It's time, he says, gesturing for the child, but the mother tightens her grip on her daughter's hand, her eyes looking a little wild or desperate or both. She musters the courage to renege on the purpose that brought them to this dreadful place on this dark night, and shakes her head. No, I want to take her home now. This was a mistake. The priest sighs, then reassures her. It's a natural feeling. But trust the goddess. She's only a child. The woman looks to her husband for support, but he shakes his head no, and she grows more agitated. She isn't the Kumari. We, we were wrong. Let, let's just go home. Give her to the priest, he says sharply. And the mother knows she's outnumbered. But no matter, I won't let you take her, she says, then picks up her daughter and turns to run to save her child from the horror behind the temple gates. This little girl is beautiful, her red dress setting off unblemished light brown skin. She has even features, coal-lined, almond-shaped eyes, and a bindi in the middle of her forehead. But her most remarkable quality is her serenity, far, far beyond her years and astonishing considering her situation. Mama, don't be afraid, she says. I have the power of Taleju inside me, so I'll be fine. Nothing in there can hurt me. She holds her mother's terrified eyes and nods reassuringly. Gradually, it seems like they're switching roles. The little girl comforting her mother, inspiring the courage she needs to let her daughter follow her destiny. We are in Kathmandu, and this remarkable child is about to try and prove she is a living goddess. Hi, it's the Anthro Girl. Welcome to this episode of our podcast. Today, we visit Nepal, an ancient land in the Himalayas, crowded between the twin behemoths China and India. It's home to eight of the world's tallest mountains, including Mount Everest, the highest point on Earth, birthplace of two of the world's great religions, Hinduism and Buddhism, and home to more than 30 million gods and goddesses. We're going to take a close look at one of them, the Kumari, a living goddess. is a living goddess. She's a little girl from the Kathmandu Valley, who after passing rigorous trials, proves that she is the incarnation of Taleju, also known as Durga, the great mother goddess from whose womb all of creation flowed. 
The Kumari tradition began in 17th century Nepal and continues today. How do you become a living goddess? The qualifications are intense. Some are physical. She can't ever have been sick or lost any teeth or even had the smallest cut that bled. If you know kids, you know how rare that would be. Then she's examined by a committee of priests for the 32 perfections of a goddess. Some examples? Well, a neck like a conch shell, a body like a banyan tree, eyelashes like a cow, thighs like a deer, voice as soft and clear as a duck, dainty hands and feet, well-recessed sexual organs. More on that one later, and this is only the beginning. The rare little girl who meets these physical standards must then undergo a terrifying test to prove she has the spirit of a goddess. And that's where we began our podcast today. So let's circle back to the temple courtyard and see how a goddess test might play out. The ordeal, as dramatized, is authentic. The mother is not yet ready to let her daughter go. Tears stream down her face and her voice chokes with emotion. Can you really understand what you're saying or imagine what you'll see in there? She gestures towards the temple gates. I'm sorry we did this. I'm sorry we ever tried. You're my princess and you don't have to be theirs. The little girl in her mother's arms reaches out a hand to wipe away her tears. I know you love me, mommy. Try and have faith. I feel the goddess inside me. Let me go. The look on her face is remarkable, sage beyond her years, knowing, enlightened. She gently pushes her mother away and, sliding to the ground, takes the priest's hand and turns wide brown eyes up to him. Her mother reaches for her daughter one last time, but her husband has already opened the gates to the courtyard, and in an instant her child disappears through them. He turns to see his wife's eyes boring into him. If anything happens to her. I'll never forgive you. You wanted this too. It was a mistake. The priests believe in her. Do you? Yes, he says, but he can't hold her gaze and finally lowers his eyes. You want the money, the offerings. You want to live in a palace. We all benefit if she's the Kumari. All our children. What's wrong with that? I can't give them what they need. But her mother just closes her eyes and shakes her head. Don't worry. If she's afraid, they'll take her out of there, and some other girl will take her place. Inside the courtyard, the goddess candidate looks up at the ghastly sight with wide brown eyes. The demons stop their dance to see who dares disturb them. One grabs a flaming torch and rushes at the interlopers. Bending at the waist, the hideous demon holds his light near her face his head turning this way and that to see her from different angles, to look for any sign of fear or intimidation. But she gazes ahead steadily, showing no emotion at all. Finally, the demon thrusts the torch upward and cries out, Dance! The others turn toward the little girl and the priest. They proceed slowly, stamping first left foot, then right, left then right, inexorably shortening and then closing the gap between them, and now the priest is intimidated. He grips the girl's hand tightly as he turns to make a run for the gate. Sensing his fear, the girl looks up at him quizzically, 
then gently pulls her hand free. Instead of running away, she walks towards the approaching demons. They part in two waves, and she enters the narrow corridor they form. Every step she takes, they close up behind her, so that it's as if a red sea of demons is urging her onward. Yet she remains serene, like she's been here before, and knows that her throne is at the end of the path. She reaches the platform where a few stairs lead to a red and gilt seat of royalty. Taking it, she gazes at the demons, her face expressionless. They form a terrifying crowd in front of her. The staring contest goes on for a few moments. Then one by one, the demons remove their masks to reveal the shaved heads and faces of holy men. One by one, dropping the masks on the cobblestones. One by one, taking a knee before her. One by one, turning to leave. Last to go is the priest who brought her. When the courtyard gate closes behind him and she is completely alone, the little girl tucks her feet under her and rests her face on the arm of the throne. She opens her mouth in a huge, decidedly ungoddess-like yawn. Clouds shift and the moon's light illuminates the 108 gory animals. But the little girl is already sleeping. She has one final test, really anticlimactic after the gory goats and dancing demons, to correctly identify her predecessor's belongings from a jumble of jewelry and clothing strewn on a bed. You may be familiar with this test, as any little boy testing to become the next Dalai Lama has to take the same challenge. If the goddess nominee succeeds, priests perform sacred rituals to cleanse her karma, and the spirit of Teleju enters her body staying with her until her first menstrual cycle, at which point the goddess leaves and the search begins again. Let's ask ourselves what the Kumari tradition reveals about Nepali society, how it helps organize their lives and values. In other words, time to get anthropological. The sacred world of gods and goddesses is everywhere present in Nepal, where 90% of the population are Hindus. Buddhists, who normally don't recognize deities, are a distant second at 10%. Yet the two religions coexist in extraordinary harmony, with Nepali Buddhists worshipping Hindu gods and Nepali Hindus practicing Buddhist tenets. The Kumari tradition functions as a highly effective social mechanism to unite disparate faiths. The chosen girl must be from a Buddhist tribe, but she is inhabited by a Hindu goddess. This is all the more remarkable in light of the historic and deadly violence between these two religions in neighboring India and Pakistan. Kumari origin stories affirm the social purposes of the ritual. All of them involve the 17th century king Jayaprakash Mala and his divine counselor Taleju, who is one of the manifestations of the Hindu mother goddess Durga. According to legend, she visited the king's chamber every night where they would play at dice while discussing how he could best and most wisely rule his people. The only condition she placed on him was to never tell anyone about their meetings. But the king's wife grew jealous and one night followed him, thinking she'd catch him with a lover. Instead, she intruded on the goddess, 
who left in a fury. Bereft, the king prayed and made sacrifices for her return. The goddess finally answered his prayers, but with one condition. She herself would no longer appear to him. He would have to search for her among the Shakya caste of the Kathmandu Valley, who are Buddhists, where she, a Hindu goddess, would be found in the body of a perfect little girl. Arguably, the Kumari is the living embodiment of religious tolerance, which is now, in fact, even written into the Constitution. The physical requirements of the Kumari provide a key to the cultural ideal for femininity in Nepal. She must be physically unblemished, a condition highly unlikely in a mature woman, but perhaps possible in a very young, prepubescent, presexual child. The requirement of well-recessed sexual organs also negates or at least diminishes the importance of menstruation and procreation to society, thereby negating or diminishing a contribution that only women can make. The Kumari's petitioners watch her expressions anxiously, believing that they are clues to their fate. If the goddess laughs, someone will fall ill. If she weeps, someone will die. Clapping her hands signals upcoming trouble with the authorities. Only silence and a poker face signal her blessing. Another fascinating hint about the cultural ideal of acceptable female power? Separated from the world. Silent and isolated. The idealized nature of the Kumari has triggered concerns about its impact on young girls. Contemporary young people have called for a ban on the practice, and it seems undeniable that such an unattainable ideal of female purity will falter in the modern world. Formerly, Kumari weren't even educated, since, as goddesses, they were believed omniscient. This left them unprepared for life after their reign. Now the Kumari has private tutors, and some even attend public school. Other criticisms of the Kumari practice are political. In 2005, a human rights petition at Nepal's Supreme Court challenged the tradition of living goddesses, who used to bless and therefore legitimize the king once a year. The case went on while Nepal overthrew its king and was declared a secular state in 2007. The judgment pronounced in 2008 supported the Kumari tradition with a significant adaptation. Now, instead of blessing the king, the Kumari blesses the president. This is a perfect example of the way in which cultural practices must adapt to survive in changing circumstances. Thanks for listening. I'm Emily Pick, and I voice the Anthro Girl. This podcast is produced by Edith Swenson, our writer, S.B. Swenson, Ph.D. Anthropology, and me. Check the show notes for a bibliography. And if you enjoyed our visit, tell your friends about us. Ooh.